Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, down, down. Uh, wrong cash, dude. <laughs> We've all been there. A web page that was working stops working, or one that was broken suddenly starts working without any obvious changes. If you've had this happen, one of the first things you should probably suspect is a caching issue. In this episode, we're going to discuss the basics of troubleshooting caching problems and how to think about them so they don't drive you insane. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting? Well, I got Windows to be stable for the moment, and I've blocked all future updates so that I can actually record my audiobook. Wow. Yeah. So I recorded the first chapter, which was 26 pages on Sunday. It took me about 45 minutes to record, so it wasn't, wasn't too bad. There were some audio things that I need to straighten out that we're going to take care of today, but, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, I got all the drivers acting right. You know, everything is is restabilized, it's patched up, and it's not suddenly rebooting, and it looks like Bluetooth works. Now, whether that stays put or not, I don't know, because it's been almost a year of it being broken, but um, yeah. So, you know, good times. I can slow down on buying the Mac for right now and not have that on my plate on top of the website rewrite and on top of recording the audiobook and everything else going on. Like, I just want to start kind of lining stuff up in a linear fashion instead of a nonlinear, <laughs> if that makes sense, because they're not really lined Total. up then. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like this is probably a better um, approach for now is just to get Windows stable and get rid of it in a way that lets me survive the transition a little bit easier. So that works. That's that's me. How about you? Oh, it was a busy weekend, man. Found a new hobby. Axe throwing. You need another hobby. Yeah. <laughs> that's what everyone said. Oh my goodness. Um yeah. Now um I'm actually not pretty bad at it. We got an hour, uh, me and a couple of guys, and first, I don't know, ten or fifteen minutes was just figuring out how to throw it. It's actually pretty similar to throwing a knife. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just like the the concept of just like Yeah, you don't you don't throw it so much as you move your arm with it in hand and let it go. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. so funny because like if you try to throw it hard, it won't work. If you just sort of move your arm and let it slide out, it yeah. lands every time. And so uh, so after, I don't know, about the first 15 minutes or so, I started working on aim. And, you know, towards the end, I was hitting the bullseye almost every time. Nice. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I, I eventually stopped taking pictures of when I hit the bullseye because I'm like, well, I just keep hitting it. I, I gained some consistency there. And at that point I started like working, trying different things out and stuff, but, uh, it's kind of cool. It's actually a real sport. Uh, yeah. apparently on ESPN and everything, they have a league here in Murfreesboro that, uh, that plays. I, uh, I almost, almost joined the, uh, the five week league that's going on on Monday nights, but, uh, I just have too much stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, you know, like there's a reason people said, Oh, you, Got another hobby. That's the first thing I thought you needed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Speaking of things I needed, I did buy a grill. Nice. I don't know if I told you guys this or not, but I, I ordered it a while back. 
or tried to order it. They didn't have it in Murfreesboro. I eventually got it out at the Lowe's in Tullahoma. And then I, uh, I rented a U-Haul to go pick it up. And I get to the, like Amanda is riding with me. We get to the U-Haul place in Shelbyville to pick it up. And they're like, we don't have trucks. We only have trailers here. I'm like, <laughs> thanks. I ordered like, I, I, they said you did online. She's like, yeah, the website will do that to you a lot. Um, they're hoping that you'll buy something else when you're here. I'm like, that just ticks people off. That doesn't work. Yeah, no. And so, so that happened. I call them. They're like, oh, hey, well, we don't have any pickup trucks, but we will give you a moving truck for the same price as the pickup truck. I'm like, all right, cool. They sent me over to the other U-Haul in Shelbyville that had trucks. And I go in and she's like, all right, that'll be $95. I'm like, what? And she's like, well, it's $20 to rent the truck. And then it's a dollar a mile. I'm like, wait, what? And I estimated 50 miles because, you know, driving back and forth and stuff. And I'm like, no, um, the whole point was to be cheaper than the $65 fee to have it shipped out to my place. So, yeah, no. So we left there and Amanda was like, well, call Murfreesboro and see if they have any. And so I called there and they had a pickup truck and it was going to be $80. So that helped with your focus considerably during the axe throwing, I guess, huh? Oh, no, this was before. This was after the axe throwing. Axe throwing was Friday night. This was Saturday. Ah, so that's your problem. <laughs> Sunday, I went go-karting. I, it, like I said, it was a busy weekend. Uh, anyway, I called my mom and my mom was like, well, you know, I was like, can can I borrow your SUV to go out there? And she's like, well, yeah, I'll, you know, I, she was over at my uncle. She's like, I'll meet you in my place and I'll help you load it and stuff. So Amanda could go uh, work on her classroom some more. So mom and I do that. And on the way out to Tullahoma to get it, mom's like, oh, by the way, I have this 20% off coupon for Lowe's. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I'm like, um, okay, thanks, mom. I, I don't know because I ordered it online. We get there, they're like, yeah, since I hadn't picked it up and paid for it, they'll let us put it on the apply the coupon. Yeah, mom, between renting a truck or paying for shipping and then that 20% off ended up saving me about $100 on this grill. Nice. I'm just like, yeah. Hope you spin it on was... meat <laughs> to grill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and then, like I said, Sunday, we went go karting to the indoor go karting place uh dude we should do that sometime it's a lot of fun nice work-wise i feel like i've been meeting purgatory man i was i was on a call all day today i know how you feel yeah. man it's like my headphone batteries were were going out at the end i was like yeah i gotta go <laughs> <laughs> yeah some of it was is um pair programming and stuff so it's not too bad but uh it's just like people who aren't developers don't get that our job isn't done in meetings like because their job is, and so they think everyone's job is done by having meetings. And it's like, no, my job is done sitting on the computer working on stuff. Uh, so no, but uh, that said, uh, one meeting that won't be bad for you is uh, if you want to take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah. Level Up Financial Planning changes the financial planning game by empowering you to live your best life, regardless of whether you are just starting up 
and need to build your financial foundation, or you're mid-career and navigating the complex and competing goals. Also, the meetings are pretty fun. Best of all, Lucas and Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for his clients, which requires him to act in the client's best interest. He's not a salesman, so you pay as long as you're getting value and you stop paying when you're not getting value. You can find some fun and free resources. Uh, Also, learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Generally speaking, repeating the same actions under the same conditions should create the same results or close enough that the results aren't a surprise at the very least. This tendency is at the root of all scientific pursuits, our development of technology, our understanding of economics, such as it is, and forms a core belief in a big chunk of the population. This is especially true for software developers because we literally rely on functions at a deep level. In fact, the mathematical definition of a function is a relation from a set of inputs to a set of possible outputs where each input is related to exactly one output. Um, That's from mathinsight.org. When examined, this statement simply says that doing the same thing should produce the same result with the same inputs, albeit with a little bit more mathematical rigor. However, if you've ever had the experience of getting burned by caching, you are more likely to describe the experience as similar to Schrodinger's cat. This is a concept from a thought experiment posed by Erwin Schrodinger during discussions with Albert Einstein while expressing his objections to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. While a full discussion of this principle is kind of beyond the scope of the podcast, the gist of it basically is that if you put a cat in a box with something that would kill it, uh, in this case, a radioactive particle, that if you couldn't perceive what was in the box, one could model it that cat as either being alive or dead. While a somewhat gruesome notion, if you have ever dealt with cache invalidation of unknown length, this probably sounds familiar. So if you suspect a cache issue, because things are behaving in a way that indicates Schrodinger's cache might be your issue, you probably need a reasonable way to think about your troubleshooting efforts. Troubleshooting cache issues without a plan is not only unlikely to succeed, but you may find that you have difficulty proving that you actually fixed an intermittent issue. In effect, you need to figure out how to let the cat out of the box so that it is in a provable state. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to start off talking about some basics of caching and then get into things that you can do if you suspect that caching is an issue. Yeah, and the idea here is to essentially get it to where you can diagnose the problem. This is a first, like a pre-diagnostic step before the real diagnosis of the issue, right? So we're going to get in, you know the basics here on, on caching, and we're going to explain this extremely generally because there's a lot more here. We should probably have a full episode on that. But basically, what a cache is, is a higher speed or lower cost, in some cases, data storage layer which stores a subset of data that is typically transient. In other words, it doesn't hang around forever. Um, so that future requests for this data are faster and or cheaper and create less load on the system. So a prime example of this would be, hey, we're looking up something in this you know, database on site, but if it gets under load on the net, that's real bad. So we want to cache the data you know, in a cheaper cache somewhere so that when it gets hit, it's not you know, pounding our internal server. It's you know, pounding 
a server somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, this is really useful if you have like lookup tables and and that sort of thing, or you're like filling in uh, drop down menus from stuff on the database that you know might change over time in the long run, but isn't like rapid change. Um, so you know, you you would cache that so that you could come back and or so that it wouldn't have to hit the database every time you know someone dropped down a menu. Right, because that's a great way to make hot tables that kill your performance mm-hmm. across the board. So when a cache is in use, an incoming request, and we're going to kind of base this around web, although it doesn't have to be, but when a cache is in use, you'll have an incoming request and it'll be examined and a cache key gets generated from the request. That key will be used to look up the result in the cache. If the result is there, it gets returned. If it isn't, it gets retrieved, stored in cache, and then returned. So that basically what you're doing is you're just you're delegating to the cache the the ability to store that data instead of replicating the work to recreate it every single time. Mm-hmm. Now, items in cache will have a cache window, and that is a period of time that will elapse before the item is removed from the cache. Uh, it's sort of a timeout. Uh, access of data subsequent to cache invalidation will cause the data to be reloaded and recached. So basically, um, you got a time frame when you, you load the data to when it says, hey, this data is no longer valid. Um, we, we can't guarantee that. So if you try to load the same data, instead of just pulling it from the cache, it'll reload it from the server or database, wherever you're pulling it from. Sometimes caches have a sliding expiration. That is, the data will remain in cache for a certain amount of time since it was last accessed, you know, up to some expiration. So you might set, okay, a 10 minute, you know, cache window, but if it's hit within two minutes, you know, that window gets pushed out. Yeah. And you'll, you may have some limit of saying, okay, it can never be more than an hour old. If it is, delete it and, you know, re add it to the cache. I've also seen, where they do this with um, calls to the database. So like the, the cached, I've seen it with lookup tables where it's like the cache stuff gets on that, on that kind of sliding scale, but it's not that particular data that's hit. But if a call to the database is made. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to do this. Yeah. Most caching systems also let you manually invalidate an item in cache or evict it from cache. It's probably a better way to put it. It's like, get it out of there. Uh, this is really handy if the thing that you're caching sometimes uh, has more volatility than the length of your cache window. So, you know, you got some object that during certain periods maybe gets changed every hour, but you've got a you know five-hour cache window on it. This lets you get it out of there so it's not giving you bad results. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, most systems will have multiple caching levels uh, for various reasons. Users will also have caching that you may not be able to completely control. Right. So a good example of that is web browser cache, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the bane of a lot of web developers' existence when you're trying to troubleshoot something because it will create intermittent problems, um, especially when there are coding mistakes in the browser. So for instance, um, Safari on the iPad um, like 10 years ago or so had an issue where it cached the results of post requests, uh, which is a big no-no, right, from the REST yeah. perspective. But it was doing it. And trying to get around that was all kinds of fun. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, talking about that at some point. Yeah. Oh. You remember me complaining about it. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you an issue that I, I ran into. It was kind of, um, it's one of those that makes you roll your eyes. Uh, and this was when I was working in the office before we went remote. I was uh, working on a project and QA sent a bug in. I was like, oh, hey, that's, you know, I hopped on. It was a UI thing. I fixed it, pushed it out to the to the test server and just turned around because he was sitting behind me. And I'm like, hey, that's uh, that's up. You can you can check that. And then he filed like he did it and he was he came back and like like uh, was all in arms because I didn't actually I didn't fix the problem, but I told him it was and like emailed my manager and like I'm like. But it's fixed. See, I was like, did you refresh your cache? He's like, well, the user's not going to know to do that. I'm like, but, but I can't fix it. <laughs> like, we're, we're, we're not going to be making like changes like this in a live production environment. This is like, you know, you got to understand how, how these systems work. <laughs> like, yeah, if you want to troubleshoot them, especially. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? So yeah, yeah, it was, it was just one of those. I'm like, you don't, you don't understand how, how this works, but uh, yeah, you know. like, you know, just where you just like, you point to his desk and say, this is your keyboard. This is your mouse. This is the machine you should never try to use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, a it was an interesting conversation. Uh, he has, uh, he has since moved on to a different job. So that's, uh, that's nice. So testing electrical outlets with forks, possibly. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I hate to be mean. Because, I don't hate it yeah. that much. Uh, now, back back to this. Uh, you should note that these tips for troubleshooting cache issues will not let us tell you what the state of Schrodinger's cache is in your environment. But these are just ways of peering into the box. Uh, and it's like Will said, this is sort of some of these are like how to tell it's a caching issue. Right, so that you know where to where to look. I, I, I've explained this many times to uh, to people. Like the way that I debug things is the first thing I do is I try to figure out where the problem is. Yeah, it's um, funny how but, many people are like, "Oh, apply the scientific method," but they can't formulate a hypothesis because they won't do the exploratory testing to get one. Yeah, well, like uh, for example, with um, with our stream at church we're having this issue with like when like someone would move a lot there, it would kind of digitize like the the movement. And so I was like, all right, well, why don't like, we have several components. We know we've plugged the camera directly into a TV and we know it's not the camera. It's like, all right, we've got a switcher. Let's plug the switcher directly into the TV. to like to a monitor and see, and I was like, but it is plugged directly into the computer. I'm like, no, it's not. It's plugged into a catch. Like, you know, that, that catches it and then it goes there. So like, let's, let's try that. Let's like see what and it ended up actually being the, the catching device, the, um, the video capture device that was causing right. that. Um, unfortunately because of COVID and everything, you can't find those. You can't wait. We, we can't upgrade right now because they're all on back order because everybody is trying to buy them because everybody is having to do streaming. Yeah. So no. So it's just, you know, but it was one of those things like I I said, like, all right, well, let's let's unplug it and plug it directly into to the monitor to see what see if that works. And I was like, I got some pushback and I'm like, until I explained what I was thinking, they're like, 
but but I'm like, we need to find out where, like, is it this component? Is it this component? Is it this component? Then we can troubleshoot how to fix it. Right. You know, and it's it's funny because some of the people like like well, the person giving pushback is a developer and does has that same thought process when it comes to software, but not when it comes like not in that particular instance. And I'm sure I have been that way before too. Yeah, I've noticed that working with uh, electrical engineers, like yeah, they'll catch me not thinking this way, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll call it out, and you're like, crap, yeah, but you do the same thing for them, right? So. I think it's a thing that you can really only do in areas that you understand well, because you don't know, like if you can't make a map of what the parts are in your head, you can't figure out which one's the problem. Right. So, and so speaking of how you start mapping this stuff, try turning off all the caches you control. Now I'm going to say this is the most drastic thing you can do and don't do it in production. Oh my goodness. No. Holy crap. You're going to get fired. However, if you can test this out in an environment that has a provably equivalent setup uh, and similar load to where the problem occurred, sometimes the caching problem will become very apparent. Uh, Load is going to be a a tricky thing. Yeah, and so is a similar setup because then you get into IT budgets Mm. and they don't like having hardware just sitting around because we might need it. Um, Yeah. So it's really unlikely that you're going to have a copy of of a production environment hanging around that can handle similar load without caching. Your production environment, in fact, might not scale to that level. In fact, that's why I was saying don't do this in production because you might kill production. Yeah. In fact, you're pretty likely to. Mm -hmm. Remember, you are only trying to suggest correlation. This does not prove any type of causation. Right. And you'll learn that very, very quickly when you do something in a new environment and it's like, oh, I got rid of the cache and that that worked. And it turns out that, well, you also made a copy of the database and the existing database server has a disk read error that's slowing things down and it's causing resource contention that's killing the cache and it has nothing to do with, it's not really a cache issue, it's, it's a hardware issue and you didn't replicate it in the other environment so you don't have a valid test. Yeah. No. For instance. So next... Try adjusting your cache windows. Yeah. So another thing that might help is to lengthen the amount of time during which data is cached. So for instance, if a particular type of aggregate route, hang on, is causing the problem and it's cached for five minutes, bump it up to 10 and see if the reported frequency of issues changes in either direction. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, Note that if an issue appears to go away when you do this, that doesn't mean that a cache window adjustment will fix it. Uh, again, this goes back to correlation, not causation. And I, I know why Will has this all throughout this episode. Because he's heard me cuss about this a few times. Well, no, week. because... <laughs> I, well, I was going to say, because I've seen where semi-technical or non-technical management will see you do this and go, oh, you fixed the problem. And it's like, no, not exactly. I fixed yeah. the symptom. Yeah, it's like saying I, I made the house not flammable by getting rid of the matches. Well, that's not, that doesn't follow. <laughs> like, it's still flammable. It's just, it's not getting lit on fire right now. Don't do that. Um, I was more thinking, you know, you like cured the flu by taking some Tylenol so you no longer have a fever. Yeah, that's actually probably <laughs> a better, yeah, a better example. Now, if your data is volatile, and your system does not do manual cache eviction, also be aware that this cache data 
may cause you problems. So you increase the cache length to 10 minutes, but on average, the data changes every five minutes and you're not manually evicting. Well, if you're reading from cache and writing some other record out there, you just corrupted data potentially. So Mm -hmm. you can't just willy-nilly do this and you should not do this on a production environment because you'll suffer unless you know it very, very well. No. Also, beware that you don't have full control over cache eviction. Server restarts, resource contention, bugs in cache software, or even other instances of your application. Tell me about that. Can mean things get evicted before you think they should be. Yeah, if possible, you need to try to determine whether the data you're retrieving was retrieved from cache or it came from whatever backing store was behind the cache. Um, the results sometimes will surprise you. Because it'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, we got these two servers here and we made sure that we handled you know, caching here. But it turns out that you know, there's another server somewhere that we didn't know about for whatever reason, yeah. you know, failover server or whatever. You never know what's in your infrastructure. Um, there have you know, been cases where people have worked in university buildings where they were doing demolition and they found a what had previously been a closet that had been completely walled off and had a Unix box that was still running. I've heard of that, yeah. You know, and it had been there for 20 years and like nobody touched it and they don't even know what it goes to, but there's a server there. Now, I don't think it's going to be that bad with typical corporate accounting now, like losing a server is something somebody gets fired for and then they go find it. But it's entirely possible to have a machine that you aren't completely aware of doing stuff that you're not aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or things on machine that yeah. you're not aware of. And I've got so. a good story about that for later. But yeah. So the next one is to try adjusting the cache invalidation rules. So if your app is using uh, hard cache timeouts, try switching to a sliding cache timeout. Yeah, and what you're looking for here is if the issue's frequency decreases or increases in a roughly proportional manner to the amount you change the cache timeout, this tends to indicate that the problem is related to cache. Furthermore, if the issues seem to appear at a predictable amount of time after the change and that time corresponds with the cache timeout, it can often point you towards other issues either with the cache being stale or having problems as a result of load near the cache boundary. In other words, like all this crap got evicted from the cache and now the system's having to go back to the database to get it and now you're getting timeouts, for instance. It's like I worked on a system that was like this when we spun up, uh, you know, we would do we would do an update and, you know, you push the website out and you've got a load balancer and so you've got one server that's taking all that load and it's still fine because it's heavily cached. The other server spins up. When we switch over to it, all these requests are coming in and because we had done some things with the cache keys to make it so that we weren't getting corruption, it's hammering everything. And so you're getting crazy amounts of timeouts while that thing's spinning up. Um, And so we would have to play with that a lot. And so this can kind of show you some things sometimes that are pretty useful for figuring out what's going on. Yeah. So the next one is to try modulating load to look for resource contention leading to cache invalidation. Right. So for instance, if you leave your caching settings the same, so like the cache windows, you know, uh, how much memory is available to the caching server, those kind of things, um, but put a lot of load on the system or drop the load. Um, again, on test, don't do this to production. Um, you'll Sometimes stuff will fall out when you do this. So what you're looking for 
are problems that result from things being removed from cache too frequently. Now, if this approach drastically increases the number of problems, then there's a good chance that it's a load-based phenomena due to premature cache eviction. If it decreases the number of problems under load, uh, which happens, uh, this might indicate that your app's cache invalidation strategy causes it to hang on to resources for too long or fails to free things that should be freed up. Mm -hmm. Next, you could try cache-busting techniques. While these vary, the essential idea here is to do something so that cache keys from one part or version of the system are different than those from another part. Yeah, you got to be real careful with this, though, because it's easy to get inconsistency and then weird behavior and possibly data corruption. So again, don't do any of this stuff in production. What this does for you is it makes sure that you're correct in your assumptions about which systems are putting what things into cache. So I worked with a senior developer who had access to production. This has been some time. But his laptop, his personal laptop, had the company code on it. They had very poor boundaries between who owns what, you know, what code lives where. Now, he didn't Mm -hmm. use this laptop all the time. Most of the time he used a desktop. However, when he went on vacation, he would take the laptop with him. And every year when he went on vacation, systems crashed. Because he would be loading up and, you know, he's at the beach, he's bored, he's working on some stuff, and he's putting crap into cash while he's doing that. But the problem is, is he's changing the shape of that data, and he forgot that he had the production cash information in his web config. Mm. Right? And so you just, you're like, what? Why, Why is it doing this at, you know, 10 o'clock so how on long a Monday did, morning? Uh, how long did it take you guys to figure that out? It had been going on, I think, for three years when I got there. And I was not one of the ones that figured it out. Like I heard from somebody else after I left. So you can imagine that's, you know, that, that's a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, there wasn't sensitive data in that uh, production cache, right? So like, it's not like there was HIPAA or anything else. It's just that, hey, you're breaking the app in weird ways. And oh yeah, oh no, dude, I've, I've worked on several things now. I don't have anything from work on my personal laptop and I, I don't have anything personal on my work laptop. I try to keep those completely separate. Yeah, same here. But like, it's just one, it's kind of a requirement at my job, but also it's just a smart thing to do. The only crossover I have is my Google account on Chrome. And that's just because sometimes I'll look up resources when I'm at school or studying for school stuff. And I'm like, Ooh, that's a really good resource. I'm going to store it on here so that I can have access to it at work. You know, um, yeah, I, I email those to myself at work. It's <laughs> actually probably yeah a good idea. But yeah, so like that's that's as close as it gets to to any crossover, and that's just you know links to it, to resources. Um, but I mean, but think yeah. about what happens if you change, even if you were using the data in exactly the same way. But oh, you updated your JSON serializer, and it changed the way it serializes property names to uppercase which never happens you know mm-hmm. um like that'll break things on the other end and and you'll yeah. look at the data and you'll be like why is this busted because it'll look right yeah definitely watch out for that another thing to watch out for is cache window mismatches so if two chunks of data are similar so they come out of the same tables but they're for different purposes or whatever so it's not the same structure you they probably should have similar cache windows as far as like the length of time you store it, right? So like if you're like, I store invoices when I pull them out of the database, right? 
an order is different than an invoice, but a lot of the data comes out of the same tables, right? Yeah. I don't want one of those to be drastically different than the other because if one of them changes, the other one is now stale unless I have some kind of crazy cash eviction that can spider through and figure out how everything's related. Um, so you're going to want those to be yeah. similar. Um, now, this includes uh, you know data that is rolled up for aggregation. So like it might be, hey, this is an invoice, but if it's... If you've got an object that's just your your outstanding invoice totals for somebody, that needs to ha- you know follow a similar policy, right? Like if those get updated, that has to get updated too, or it's stale. Um, now, some systems are tolerant of that uh, to varying degrees because people expect things to be slow, but if they don't, you know, it has to be there uh, together. Essentially, what can happen is that one piece of data is kept longer than the other, and that periodic application errors can occur because the assumption is that they are kept for the same amount of time. You know, it's like when you make assumptions, blah, blah, blah. You assumption. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not you and me. It's your assumption. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not involved. Um, yeah, so like, think about a bank account balance, right? That's a running, that's a running aggregation of activity on the account. Mm-hmm. Let's say that that only gets updated every four hours but your transactions are updated immediately. Well, what happens at, you know, like you just got home from the grocery store and you decide I'm going to balance my checking account because everybody does that now instead of going online and you start doing it manually, your bank balance is going to be off big time. And if those, you know, if the pending transactions aren't showing, that can be a problem. Well, you know, another one might be a little bit more relevant is uh, if you go to a restaurant and you tip, your pending transaction will be the cost of the, you know, like cost of the meal. It won't have the tip on there until it goes in. Right. So if you look at your balance, it's, it's not going to be the same. Or like, for example, I use, um, every dollar to, to do my budgeting, uh, cause I can do it on my phone or I can do it on my computer. And, you know, that has like what I spend for the month, including what I put on the credit card. Credit card gets paid off the next month. Right. You know, so that's not an accurate representation of my what's in my bank account. It's an accurate representation of what I spent that month. Now, the saving side of that is actually pretty accurate, but that's a whole other thing that we'll talk about some other time uh, in a different episode. But yeah. Yeah. Time travel with bank accounts and ledgers and those kind of things is all kinds of fun. But yeah, this could be an issue. Another thing that's a mismatch type thing is cash usage. So look for ways in your app, and you'll have to do this probably by looking at code where some parts of your application and or supporting pieces of it circumvent caching, either for reads or for writes. So some of them be like, no, you know, I've got this console app and it's it's going out here and it's doing some kind of processing. Well, I don't want to yeah. cache, right? Or I've got different cache settings. And so now there's a mismatch on, mm-hmm. on how this stuff gets cached. So you know, it can be causing problems in the main system by putting stuff in there that no longer matches the rest of the system as far as its understanding. So it's easy to get stuff out of consistency, essentially. So it's it's not really a cache issue, but it's just, it's it's a consistency issue. And the result of this behavior will still be sporadic. And it may put things into cache that get emitted somewhere else and cause a problem, you know, further out. So like, you know, yeah. let's say an order, you know, has to be in there for a little while before it really you know, should be in the cache for some reason. 
but this thing grabs it and says, oh, I'm going to stick it in the cache because I'm not treating it the same. No. Watch this for those get, kind of situations. Yeah. So this can get really interesting when you have multiple levels of caching involved. So like you may have browser cache, then web server, and then a cache server. I and mean, just like you can. And a denormalized yeah. database to rule them all. Yes. And, like you can you can just like yeah. keep keep going down into the different levels of inception here. Yeah. So I've I've seen one like this. Uh we had a dynamic menu that people's you know people could build when they're kind of setting up one of their sites. Mm-hmm. And the menu was stored in the database. But this was pre hierarchy ID becoming common in SQL and it still has some performance things, honestly. And so we did this whole spanning tree thing and you get the whole thing out. And it's really expensive to get it out, sort it out, and hand it back. So we obviously cram that into a cache, right? Uh Because you're you're making a tree structure out of a flat structure, right? There's a lot of work that has to happen for that to occur, and so it's expensive. Well, you know, we put it in the cache, and we, to get that, you would make a get request to the server. Okay, that's fine and dandy. The get request gets the menu, builds it dynamically. This is back in the web forms days, you know, is a long time ago. And so, you know, that seems like it works. It updates when they update. But if somebody else updated and hits the site, their browser cache is cached that get request. So now you have a menu that is incorrect and stuff may have been taken down off of there. And when you click the link, it doesn't go anywhere. Or you get a 404 or something. And that's a uh, that's a pretty serious issue, you know, like stuff just disappears and you can't fix it. No. So the next thing you want to do is to look for bad cash key generation. Um, you need to make sure that your cash key generation is consistent across your app for the same type of return payload. You know, also make sure that there isn't an overlap in the cash key generation. Right. So let's say that you're doing domain driven design and you've got some kind of aggregate route that is used in a bunch of different places in the system. It should be cached mm-hmm. consistently generally across the system so that, you know, one of them isn't getting something that isn't, you know, that's, that's stale or one of them isn't getting something that's too new that it shouldn't be getting. Cause otherwise things get really, really tricky to, to trace through the system. You also have to watch where if you've got two pieces that are dissimilar, that you're not generating the same cash key for them. And so, again, a DDD example. Let's say I have a person class in Mm -hmm. two different systems. One of them is what HR envisions as a person with all the crap that goes with that. Another one is what, you know, some other group in the company envisions as a person, maybe like uh, scheduling of you know worker jobs or whatever, right? It's two completely separate things. But if both classes are called person and they're hitting the same data source, if you generate a cache key based off the person ID that happens to be the same, you've got two different schemas getting crammed into the same spot. And so whoever reads the wrong one is going to have a bad time. Yeah. And the thing is, is stuff like this, a lot of times your load patterns are going to be you know, such that the same person doesn't get hit by the same systems at the same time very often. So you might see this, you know, once every six weeks in some systems. Mm, that can be really confusing trying to figure out what's going on here. Yeah, because you just can't prove it. 
You know, so yeah, definitely be really careful about how you do cash key generation. Um, I would you know strongly recommend doing something that encodes the type in there if you have a type system, you know, in some yeah. way so that it's part of that, the type and the version of the assembly or the version of the app or whatever you happen to be using so that you don't get a collision when you don't expect to have one. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So finally, make sure cache invalidation windows either align with the volatility of things being cached or that cache is evicted upon relevant changes. Yeah. And this is a lot more complex than you think it is Mm -hmm. um, because usually there's multiple views of the same data in the same system and you're going to want to keep them all together. And you've also got to trace relationships and all this kind of stuff. It can get, it can get pretty hairy uh, pretty quickly. A lot of times data will have changed since it entered cache. Uh, so, you know, sometimes in some cases, this is completely acceptable. It's fine, right? Like, you know, it's your, your roll up of fees for the day. Well, they don't think that your, your activity five minutes ago should necessarily be rolled up. That's totally fine. But um, sometimes you need it to, to be accurate up to the minute. So you have to look at how volatile the pieces are that you're putting into the cache. So how often do they change and how often are we going to store them? However, volatility itself may be volatile. Right. Depending on application usage patterns. And the volatility of that volatility is also volatile. Um, There's like volatility all the way down. Oh, so (laughs) it's a turtle. Yeah, basically it's a turtle. Um, And it really depends on your your app usage pattern. So, for instance, um, let's say that you are you're running a warehouse that sells decorative Christmas ornaments, you know, some, you know, crap or whatever like that. And not saying that you would do that. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with it. Um, I'm not saying that I wouldn't. I mean, it's making me money. It's making me money. Yeah, it's really simple. So during the normal course of the year. That's, you know, your warehouse inventory is not super volatile, right? You get a truck in that's got some stuff. You put it in the warehouse. Probably you're not selling much in June. That's a reasonable assumption most of the time. Now, say November rolls around. All of a sudden, now you are selling stuff. And so the, you know, like your, your inventory is now more volatile. In other words, it's changing more frequently and your system's under more load. Because people probably aren't shopping in June either. All right, cool. Well, over years, that may go up or down as well. Mm-hmm. As you get closer to Christmas, it's going to, you know, it's not going to be a linear change either. So you got to be really careful about that. But well, it depends. Like if you're supplying stuff to Hobby Lobby, then it'll be May when they start ordering Christmas things. Right. And <laughs> I it'll mean, be hitting. Really, you got you to look at that because like stores, they're going to start stocking. Well, yeah, they got to get it up in October, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, you know, so like, totally seriously, you may, you may be supplying direct to the customer and then you get some deals supplying a chain of stores. And all of a sudden the time that, you know, like you're used to a big increase in November and they're, they're ordering in August so that they can have it in and up by October. Right. Like it, like this, and, these things could change. And the thing is you get that customer in June and you don't, it doesn't even occur to you. Right. Yeah, so exactly. The, like the volatility changes all the way down. Mm-hmm. So if the data is usually cached uh, for a short time when compared to the frequency of updates to the data, you might be missing some performance gains that could make your app perform better, which is fine. <laughs> yeah. 
On the other hand, if you are caching data for a longer time period, then the data is likely to remain unchanged. You risk um, data inconsistency if you aren't evicting things from cache. Yeah, or corruption straight up because you read it from cache, you changed it, and then you wrote it. Yeah. And now the cache has changed and the database has changed, but it's changed with a value that's no longer correct. So guys, dealing with caching issues is very frustrating. One of the biggest problems is that caching often manifests in a very unpredictable manner. This can be driven by load or by user behavior. And because of this, troubleshooting caching problems often requires that you first prove that caching is a factor in the problem before even attempting to correct it. Once you can prove that the cache is involved, then you can manipulate your cache in order to make the problem easier to reproduce, which will be a huge benefit when you're troubleshooting and debugging. I can't tell you how many times that not being able to reproduce the problem has been like, I've had meetings, you know, I was talking about meetings earlier. I've had meetings just because of that in the past few yeah. weeks. I've, so. I've had that conversation too, where you're like, look, pandas are dying out because they can't reproduce. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's yeah, it's completely impossible to do science when you can't reproduce an issue and you can't do experiments, form a hypothesis, et cetera. So yeah. Um, Anyway, we want to give a thank you and a huge shout out to Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episode. Through his sponsorship, Lucas is helping us achieve our podcasting goals, just like he'll help you achieve your financial goals. That pretty much wraps us up. Uh, Beej, what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade? So I've kind of talked about this before. I I set myself up for it a little earlier, but... um, Burning ring of fire? No, no, not quite. Meetings are the bane of many developers. A lot of times they're not productive or they could have been handled by email or other asynchronous communication channels. Now, it's true there are times when meetings are, are useful, such as troubleshooting uh, between developers or in Mass emergency situations. Yeah, <laughs> emergency situations. One thing that helps to prevent random meetings being scheduled is if you actually schedule development time on your work calendar instead of just leaving that open. Now, as tempting as it might be, you can't take up all of your work day every day with development time. You'll need to leave some spaces for meetings that do have to occur. Um, but this is a way that you can have some control over when people schedule them. Uh, also, when people want to schedule something during normal development time, they'll have to ask you since that time has been blocked off on your calendar. Uh, for example, I got an email not too long ago saying, hey, I see you're, you know, you're really busy this week because I had a couple of meetings already fill in the meeting times that I had. We wanted to, to meet with you about this topic. Um, and the only time you have available is on Friday. I was like, yeah, it's, it's a busy week. I was like, you know, if, yeah, can you tell me what it's about? If it's important, I can talk to my boss and see if I can devote some development time to that meeting. Um, and they didn't include my boss in the email. So I just copied him like I went ahead and copied him for you so that, you know, it's, it's easier. And, uh, of course by doing that, he came back and he's like, Hey, you know, my developers have, you know, their job is, is development. Uh, can you give us an agenda for this meeting? What's it going to be about? Like, can we 
can we do this offline? Does he does he need to spend an entire hour on a call? That kind of stuff. And it was it was really great because I have a really awesome boss who stands up for his developers and just goes, hey, you know, you know, he doesn't throw us under the bus, so to speak. But uh, yeah, and you know, from that we found out, oh, this is what they want to talk about, and we're able to go, hey, you know, I can tell you this information via email, and then we can discuss these other questions you have, and we're able to cut the meeting down to 30 minutes. And, you know, so it's one of those things, like, if I had not set that blocked out time for development and been strict about it, they would have just thrown a meeting in there and I would have gone in to that meeting not knowing what was going on, or I would have just declined it and potentially gotten in trouble for for declining a meeting. But because of of having that, they had to reach out to me and say, Hey, do you have any openings in your schedule or anything that, you know, we could fit this into that led to a discussion. And we, we were able to resolve some of those, those questions they had without having to, uh, you know, take up an entire hour of, you know, potential work time for that. So, you know, just, just think about that. If you can, don't leave a lot of open space on your schedule, put blocks. Like I do two hour blocks of development time. Because I can do basically four Pomodoros in that with five minutes in between each. And like I'm like, all right, I can get a lot of development done in two hours. I'll do a two hour block and then I'll I'll have lunch or I'll you know, I'll leave a space open for meetings or something, and then I'll do a two hour block. So just just consider that and you know, that's pretty much all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.